Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we examine the refugee crisis in Venezuela, which may not be receiving the same widespread attention as the crises in Syria and Myanmar, but which is nonetheless having a significant impact in Latin America. Now, for many Venezuelans, a combination of economic and political factors has created living conditions that are simply untenable. And consequently, the country has seen a mass exodus of an estimated 1.5 million citizens since early 2017, and a reported 2,000% increase in asylum claims since 2014, which are in turn creating significant pressures on neighboring countries. To unpack this situation in Venezuela, I spoke with Jean-Nicolas Beuze, the Canadian representative for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Jean-Nicolas Beauce, thank you so much for joining us on, on Policy Talks. I really do appreciate you coming in and uh, meet. Um, lending your perspective on this topic. Uh, I want to start in terms of, of how we got here. So could you reflect um, for us on the, some of the, the, the reasons behind why the situation is as it is in Venezuela? So it's a complex situation to to explain, uh, and I think for a number of uh, listeners to to grasp is uh, we are used to refugee flows which are really provoked by uh, an open conflict, and we immediately think of uh, Syria, Iraq, perhaps uh, South Sudan, or more recently Myanmar and the Rohingya, who, which who went into uh, Bangladesh. In the case of uh, Venezuela, it's a, it's a mixed uh, situation where we had a deteriorating situation in terms of the economic situation of the country. The, the price of oil uh, dropped in 2014. That's when uh, President Maduro came in power after the death of uh, President Chavez. And as a result of, of that, there was some discontent from the population, mainly based on their uh, incapacity to continue uh, to, to lead a normal life because the prices were going up and up and the salaries were not uh, catching up. Um, that was uh, uh, um, complicated by the fact that this peaceful demonstration that we have seen, mainly students, uh, union activists, uh, but the political opposition, was met with uh, a very harsh uh, uh, and excessive use of uh, violence on the part of the government, on the part of the police, the military, but also some self-organized community groups, the collectivos and, and other armed groups, uh, which were working on behalf of the government. As a result of that, we have a situation where a number of people are leaving Venezuela because they have been targeted uh, because of their peaceful expression of their political op opposition. And here we think of the students, the unionists, the indigenous leaders and others. But we have also a number of people who are leaving simply because they cannot buy food, they cannot buy medicine, they cannot go to the hospital and therefore they leave. So we have uh, uh, two flow at the same time, one which is really driven by, if you wish, poverty and economic deprivation. And what which is really uh, driven by the violence uh, uh, in, in individualized persecution, if you wish. And is this um, this confluence of, of both the economic and the political, is this um, exacerbated in, in different regions in the country more uh, in a more focused way, or is it really affecting the population writ large? 
It, it initially was really in the urban centers and in the capital where all those demonstrations were taking place. But it spread out because the um, difficulties of dealing with the day-to-day -day life because of the economic uh, situation uh, really spread everywhere in, in the countryside as well. And because the uh, response was really one where uh, use of force rather than dialogue was used and, and the collective, all those armed citizens who on behalf of uh, the government try to put law and order, it really spread out to the whole country. At some point, we had more than 5,000 Venezuelans leaving the country per day. That's a, that's a huge number, and most of them have been moving towards uh, uh, the south, to Brazil, to Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. A few have gone up, uh, trying to reach uh, the US, and a few have gone as far as Spain. Um, I want to talk about some of those those surrounding countries in a moment, but um, just coming back to kind of the, the the lead up into where we are today. Some people have described the situation in, in Venezuela as a a gradual crisis, um, and they, and they've they've used that term in comparison to something um, like Syria. Um, is that an accurate description? If so, why or why not? I think we we have been a bit misled with uh, the situation in Syria. I think now really an open conflict with many v warring parties uh, um, uh, operating on the territory of, of Syria. At the beginning in Syria, it was also a question of uh, bread and butter. I would say uh, people de demonstrated because there was a, a raise in the prices of uh, of basic uh, goods for people. They demonstrated. Some people were arrested. Some children were uh, beaten up. Some children died in detention which little by little uh, drew the, the country into a full-fledged conflict. We are not in this situation in Venezuela where we don't have an open conflict with different armed groups really uh, fighting on different battle uh, uh, front lines, battle lines. But we, we, we have a situation which is rapidly deteriorating in terms of uh, the way that people are uh, able or not to express their dissatisfaction with the, the policies and with the decision taken by the governing uh, authorities. So with the large number of Venezuelans that are leaving Venezuela and, and, and traveling to other countries in the area, um, how is that playing out in some of these other countries? Uh, how, have their, how have their local governments reacted? Um, how have the the, the citizens of those countries reacted. What is what is the impact of this this exodus on some of these neighboring countries? And that's a very interesting uh, question, Mitch, uh, because that goes down to to which extent uh, countries these days are able to recognize or willing to recognize when uh, the forcible movement of population is driven by violence or other means. And we have this situation all over the place, whether it's the Mediterranean Sea uh, and, and Europe or in the case of Venezuela. It's difficult for a number of, of countries to qualify the Venezuelans who arrive on their territories as refugees, because that's making if you wish, a political statement about the situation inside Venezuela. And a number of those countries have very strong ties, economic ties, also uh, linked to the oil production with, uh, with Venezuela. Uh, what uh, is important to note is that Despite that, all the Venezuelans who have left have been welcomed by those countries, Brazil, uh, Ecuador, Col uh, Colombia in particular, and Peru more and more. 
and I've been given some kind of status, not necessarily being labeled as refugees, but some kind of status which allows them to stay in their countries and wait for the situation to, to improve so that eventually they will go back to Venezuela. The question which is difficult is how long are they going to stay and what is being done in the meantime for people outside Venezuela to survive. Because when you arrive having left your country with nothing, uh, I've, I've been told stories of people who have been walking uh, with their families for 30 or 45 days. Uh, when you, they arrive in a, in a village or in a city, they are absolutely exhausted. Uh, they may be depressed. They may not have the network to find a job or even find a shelter. So there's all kind of risk of exploitation of the women, the children, the adults. Um, and, and therefore, it's really what is going to be done by all those countries to sustain uh, the presence of the Venezuelan. And um, not surprisingly, the countries in the region have s shown their solidarity and are really doing their utmost, even if they don't label them as refugees, to make sure that people can uh, stay and resume some sort of normal life. So then, um, when um, the Venezuelans uh, who are leaving Venezuela, when they arrive in, in some of these other countries, and is it is, is there some consistency in how they're they're being treated or is it very much on a on a case by case basis with which with each of the uh, the receiving countries so each country has different policies and different uh, uh, support and different services program to support uh, those uh, refugees and those migrants those who are living and here we have the difference between the refugees who are fleeing the violence and the migrants who are uh, fleeing the, the poverty but what is uh, admirable is really that none of the countries have uh, said no to the Venezuelan. None of the countries have closed the border. None of the countries have said, no, we cannot accept you. It has been really one of, okay, we are, we are facing this situation. We are going to help you the best we can. So some are giving immediately a two years residency in the country and it's easy to get. For other, in other countries, you need to go through a refugee uh, determination process like there is in Canada uh, with a body which will uh, decide whether you are living because of the persecution or because of the of the poverty or the economic situation, in some countries, uh, um, most of the countries have given a work permit, and that's very important because that means people can legally try to find uh, uh, resources to to feed themselves and their and their families. So overall, it's it's different uh, approach. But what we have to retain, and I think it's also important vis-à-vis -vis the discourse we have these days in Canada with people. Uh, crossing the border in Quebec is that all those countries, despite the fact that we are speaking about big numbers, have said we need to give the space, the protection and the support for those Venezuelans to, to have a break and decide when it's safe for them to return to Venezuela. Are there any indications that that situation might change in, in any countries to your knowledge? I mean, uh, given the numbers and they seem to be increasing or they, they have increased uh, certainly over the last several months, there's got to be a capacity issue in some of these countries to, to, to handle more and more people. Is there any indication that, that I don't know, in, in, in some respects, the open door, um, if that's a fair categorization, uh, in some of these countries might actually start to close? 
uh, yeah, we are always uh, aware or, or concerned, I would say, that there may be a tipping point where the uh, solidarity doesn't uh, lead the response of, of not only the government, but also the, the host communities, I mean, the local communities, the Brazilian, the Colombian, the Peruvian. Uh, at the end of the day, most of the refugees will remain in among the poorest uh, communities of those receiving countries. Uh, it's very rare that you see anywhere in the world uh, asylum seekers or refugees arriving in the posh uh, neighborhood of the, of the capital. And uh, I mean, there are some who have the means to, 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 to rent a place, but uh, the overwhelming majority will remain in the poor uh, neighborhood. And that's, uh, that's really a, an important point because we are dealing with countries which are not necessarily that rich or that have also their own problem in terms of economic deprivation and poverty and violence and violence within the community and violence within the family and at times sometimes government which feel a bit overwhelmed in how to deal with law and order issues and economic issues. So for the time being we have not reached this tipping point. I think there's a really a solidarity at the highest level but also from the communities to say, let's take uh, Colombians for example. A number of Colombians during the civil wars have uh, actually left to go to Venezuela so in a way, you no know, receiving the Venezuelan is kind of uh, uh, giving back the favors that they received uh, uh, during years of being hosted and protected mm -hmm. against uh, violence in Colombia. So they, and there's a strong sense of solidarity. The, 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 the Central America and Latin America has a long tradition of, of uh, political uh, uprising and, and movement of people who are uh, fighting for uh, more democratic uh, processes and institutions and so on. So it's something which is quite uh, rooted in the way people uh, think about those uh, uh, refugee populations, much more than here in the Western world. We'll have more with Jean-Nicolas Beuze after the break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. And almost lastly, uh, UNHCR today issued a new protection guidance encouraging states uh, to ensure Venezuelans who are seeking asylum have access to territory and refugee procedures. UNHCR said that in view of the situation in Venezuela, it's crucial that people are not deported or forcibly returned. According to the UNHCR, since 2014, there's been a 2,000% increase in the number of people fleeing Venezuela. While 94,000 Venezuelans were able to access refugee procedures last year, Hundreds of thousands of them remain without any documentation or permission to stay legally in asylum countries. That was UN Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Dujarek discussing capacity issues to accommodate Venezuelans leaving their country. With resources stretched thin, Jean-Nicolas and I concluded our conversation by discussing how the international community can assist in the region. Obviously, every country is different, and every country has uh, a unique culture. And even within a single country, there are there are several different cultures. Um, but is there something to be said in this in this case where we're having um, citizens from Venezuela, um, for the most part, um, going to neighboring countries where there is some degree of of a, homo a homogenous culture versus um, 
or or some some strong similarities versus a situation for example with with uh, uh, Syrians leaving Syria and ending up in Germany um, is is there something to be said about about the situation in Venezuela and the reception of Venezuelans in these com- in these other countries because there there are strong similarities and bonds uh, uh, definitely it helps to be speaking the first lang- the same language i mean it's easier for people to communicate and to understand that the venezuelans arriving in colombia are not doing it if you wish, on their free will, but because they are forced by the circumstances. So they have this direct communication between neighbors, at the cafe, at the restaurant, at the workplace, that you don't have when it's a, a foreign population who cannot explain why, in the end, they ended up in Canada or in, in Germany. So that's definitely the fact that it's homogeneous in terms of also the, the religion is certainly something which helps. And, and here we have also a lot of solidarity from the churches. We know that a number of responses and community uh, getting organized are, organ- are organized around the church or the, the religious uh, faith-based uh, 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 responses. So that uh, definitely helped. I think the, 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 the history of, uh, of this continent is also very much uh, uh, playing a, a positive role. As I just said a, a bit earlier, this continent has seen massive, if you think of Argentina and Brazil and Chile, I've seen m- major uh, situation of refugees where people were were leaving mm-hmm. for uh, f- because of the of of what they wanted in their own country because of political turmoil and so on. Where it's a bit more difficult than Venezuela is that a number of them are living because of the poverty and because of the fact that there is no food to buy in the supermarket or medicine. And the host communities on those countries may say but we don't have much more food or right. medicine than you yeah. in the first place. So why are you coming here? You are becoming, uh, you, you are competing with us for those limited resources. And that's where we have a risk of tension, which often escalate at the political level. And that actually, I think, is an interesting point um, that feeds into my next question about if if the neighboring countries, we do res- end up at a, at a tipping point and there are capacity issues, you can't handle continuous amounts of people coming into the country for for a variety of reasons. And you alluded to this earlier, some Venezuelans are in fact going beyond neighboring countries into places such as the United States um, and, and, and others, or Spain, or Spain yes. Mm-hmm. What are some of the stark differences there in terms of um, uh, what that journey is like for those individuals and, and, and also in terms of their arrival, how they're treated? Uh, here we have a, a, a distinction uh, based on the on the economic power of those people. If you want to claim asylum in Spain, uh, you need to buy a, f- a ticket. That means you need first to have a passport. That means you you need to have a, not in the case of Spain, but for example, all other countries, you need to have a visa. So it's further, co- let's say, to come to Canada. To mm-hmm. take the example, you need a visa, and the visa cannot be obtained in Venezuela. It has to be obtained in Mexico. So there's already kind of... Um, of uh, discrimination in where people who are fleeing perhaps the same violence or the same situation may end up in terms of asking for asylum. Uh, uh, the, the poorest will end up in the neighboring countries close to the border. They won't be able to really make it within those host countries. The richer one will be able to get a passport. It's extremely complicated these days to get a passport in Venezuela. It's complicated to get one visa for uh, Canada from, from Mexico and then you need to buy the, the, the flight ticket. So it's a different uh, approach. As a result of, w- of which in, in Canada, for example, we tend to have 
the upper middle class, educated, uh, who may have been uh, engaged in political uh, um, activisms or students or, or people who had a small or large business and who got, how do you call that, when, when uh, those groups are asking for money, bri uh, bribes or, or, lobbying or, 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 yeah, yeah. or corruption and, and uh, being asked to pay some, yeah, some bribes. To. So y you tend to have a different profile of people ending up in Canada or Spain or the US and those who are ending in the neighboring countries. Do you think, I, and I understand uh, obviously that that makes a lot of sense and just hearing that, do you think that that in some ways is, I don't know, I, I think it's interesting to hear that because you would think countries like Canada, United States, Spain, who have perhaps more resources to, to provide for uh, migrants or refugees, in fact, get the migrants or, or, or refugees that need assistance the least in some respects because they have some means versus the most needy, in fact, go to the countries that mm -hmm. are perhaps in a position, uh, a lesser position to be able to provide. Um, I, I recognize the, the reasons behind that, but is there is there any thought ever given to that and, and some of kind of the so the f the, when, when we are really speaking about refugees or people who are uh, persecuted because of who they are or what they stand for, what they have said or done, um, uh, the, the, the first thing is really the protection, the fact that you are not at risk of being detained, tortured, raped or, uh, uh, or killed. Uh, and therefore, whether you are in Brazil or in uh, Canada, for those people, I assure you, for, for all the testimonies that I've heard, it makes no difference. It's mm -hmm. a sense of safety, of security. And there, Canada can uh, uh, offer as much as any of the surrounding countries to Venezuela. Where it comes then to the socioeconomic integration and people being able to rebuild their life, of course, definitely, we believe that a number of rich countries, Western countries, G7 countries, call them whatever you want, take the group you want, are in a very good position and a strong position, and a country like Canada would who relies a lot on immigration just for uh, the demographics of this country, the economy of this country, the uh, inclusiveness of and the social fabric of, of this country. We really believe that Canada could do more in taking, whether it's Venezuelan or other uh, refugees throughout the world. I think where Canada can also do a uh, difference, it's really helping those countries which are in the front line. Because ultimately, we know that uh, a, a very small portion of the, the refugees refugees uh, will come to the Western world. If we look at the numbers, last year we counted 25 million uh, refugees and asylum seekers and barely 50,000 came to Canada, 0.2%. So Canada has to provide this protection here and socioeconomic integration and so on, but needs also to step up to support the uh, Colombia, uh, Peru and Mexico of the world. If not, the, in the case of Syria, the Lebanon, or in the case of uh, the Rohingya, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. uh, to be able not to go into the tipping point that we were referring uh, uh, earlier on, which will mean that they will close their door or worse, that they will push back uh, people to situation where there will be a risk for their life. So if we consider the role for international actors uh, in a situation like Venezuela, um, Given given uh, that you uh, are with UNHCR, could you uh, elaborate for us what exactly um, the UN Refugee Agency is doing right now? 
uh, in Venezuela and, in fact, in the in the surrounding area. So uh, we are an intergovernmental body, uh, a United Nations uh, organization, which come in support of the effort of those governments which are on the front line. And we very much rely on what they indicate, uh, indicate as being the, the gaps in the response that they can provide. Uh, the primary response, which is keeping the, the border open, giving a residency statue or a work permit, that's not UNHCR. This is really for those countries. We advise them on how to do that. We may help them to put together a registration, a census, to know how many of, uh, of the Venezuelans are in their country, what is the profile, how many adults, how many will need to go to school, how many uh, can eventually find a job, and, and so on. So we do all, all this advice. And in some situation, we get uh, uh, the government who comes to us and uh, that comes to us and said, on this front, uh, we won't be able to do it. We need more shelter. Help us to rent a uh, hotel or whatever, or um, whatever building which can be turned into, uh, into shelter. And there we can work with our NGO partner uh, on uh, opening those shelters. But again, that's where we need the support of Canada or other countries. Because if, they cannot do, if those countries cannot do it by themselves and ask us, we need somebody to pay the bill. And the bill has to be paid by countries which are not in the front line. Is is funding the only gap or are there er other gaps where Western nations can make a meaningful contribution to a situation like Venezuela? I mean, f money drives a lot of things in the, in the 21st century or, or as, ever, as always uh, driven a lot of things. So uh, we, ca we definitely count on Canada to do more than, than funding. It's... Uh, using its political leverage and its good offices to maintain the border open to all those countries. It may be also providing technical uh, support in saying, okay, we have a Canadian refugee board which is doing really uh, well in terms of assessing those claims. Perhaps we can send some of our members so that they can train on the job, uh, the members of, of your commission mm -hmm. assessing the... So there's different uh, uh, ways of, uh, of uh, doing the support. But very much, and I, I, I may sound a bit like um, always coming back to, to the money issue, and I know that uh, uh, we have seen, uh, the humanitarians are often seen as just always asking for money. But it it's really makes a difference, because we have assessed all the needs, and for the time uh, being, we have not even funded half of what we need to deliver the result to those Venezuelans. That means every uh, family, uh, out of two families, we can support one family with shelter, with vaccination, with kids in school, with uh, uh, whatever support for if uh, somebody has been injured or needs some psychosocial uh, uh, support uh, because of the trauma of leaving one's home or because of the trauma of having been arrested and tortured. So it's um, th there's so much we can do uh, uh, with the funding that we currently have, it's half person. It's it's not bad. I mean, we, if we look at other situation, if we look at the situation in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, we are not even 15 to 20 percent of the funding that we need. So, in a way, mm -hmm. the Venezuela situation, because of the politics around it, I think has attracted quite a lot of uh, support, in particular from the Americans. Uh, but um, there's different ways, as you were saying, there's different ways to support those countries by showing that, oh, for example, in the case of Canada, that a number of people will be resettled from mm -hmm. these countries to come to Canada and integrate in, in Canada for some specific profile. Is there, a, 
is there a an estimate on what the funding gap is in terms of in terms of dollars? Uh, we are we are missing more than twenty millions uh, uh, as we speak, which is not so much when mm-hmm. you uh, compare to other situation. Uh, the overall uh, funding for um, for this situation of Venezuela, so all those countries, is around fifty million. If you comp for UNHCR, uh, if you compare to the seven hundred thousand uh, Rohingya who arrive in Bangladesh for one year the bill come up to 250 million so basically what I, w- uh, I want to also say is that with a little investment you can do a lot uh, to help the Venezuelan we need much more investment in the Rohingya to have a comparable uh, impact for because the numbers of people is mm-hmm. far far greater and the complication of the, the the landscape in Bangladesh is far more complicated than operating in Colombia or Peru do you think that there is a correlation at all between the gap in funding and perhaps um, a, a certain lack of, of media exposure on, on this situation? Definitely. We saw a few articles in the past, uh, really more on the political mm-hmm. side of the, of, the, of the story inside Venezuela and really looking at... Uh, uh, what the, the the Maduro government was doing or not doing or, or how they were doing things. There's been little coverage on uh, actually the fact that, yes, 5,000 Venezuelans per day were leaving the country and why and where and to find what. Uh, that we have had difficulties to really attract the, the Western media, uh, the Canadian media in, included, uh, in terms of, of raising the profile of the situation. Do you have any theories of why that is? It has been difficult because the, the whole region, we have also the situation of the uh, north of Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which is driving uh, women and children in particular out of their home uh, because of the gangs violence. Here we are really speaking about criminal gangs violence. Um, um, it seems not to be uh, reaching the, the news here. I think uh, at some point we collectively have to reflect that um, we, we, we tend to jump on a new crisis, a big crisis, one which has really strong image, and Syria was one, and Alan Kurdi was certainly one which uh, shocked the, 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 the public opinion in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, we had a little bit of that with the Rohingya. But for example, the Rohingya, we are uh, now nine months uh, down the, the beginning of the crisis. We are not even 25% funded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That means that, the, and, and, and when was the last time you saw an article uh, in the newspaper on television about the Rohingya? And it's only nine months, and yeah. it's 700,000 people, and it's arriving in Bangladesh, which is definitely uh, underserved and underprivileged and underdeveloped uh, country. Um, so I, I think we have to, 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 to acknowledge that the, the capacity for people to find empathy for those crises is limited because we have never seen that many people fleeing uh, conflict and persecution. Uh, last year, in 2017, we have seen an increase of 2.9 million of refugees at the highest increase in a given year that UNHCR has ever witnessed. It's it's. It, it's telling, but it's also telling in terms of perhaps us reinventing or, or looking at how we can mobilize uh, the, the, the interest and, and the goodwill of, uh, of population like Canada, Europe, the U.S. Mm-hmm. on those issues. Immigration is um, a front burner topic in, in Canada right now. 
uh, and there are there are differing opinions naturally between the the current government and the opposition um, on this topic. Do you think the the political fallout um, of the on the topic of immigration is having an impact? Uh, in terms of what Canada is doing in this particular situation? And do you think that this is having an even broader impact uh, more generally in terms of what Canada is or, or, or isn't doing um, for for people who are, for whatever reason, leaving their, their home countries? No, I think that Canada in terms of the uh, the, the politicians, the elected o- official, but and across uh, all parties, I think uh, there's a definitely the willingness to to play a positive role on the international seals, scene when it comes to to refugee movement and and, and people fleeing conflict and uh, and um, and um, persecution. What I'm a bit more concerned is that we need to maintain the public opinion. So I'm not so concerned about the political um, level where I think there is a firm commitment for Canada to support to the extent possible those different crises, whether it's Venezuela or the Rohingya or South Sudan. Um, it's more the, the, the question of how long is that going to, to last if little by little we see the public opinion shifting and questioning uh, whether uh, all those uh, people arriving in Canada are actually uh, genuine refugees or or whether it's not too much uh, in terms of what it costs to support them, to accept them, or the resettled refugees. That's where there's a uh, potential uh, shift. And that's where I have have an issue. I've been uh, saying it in the media, and I'm going to the parliament tomorrow. We we have to put things in perspective. Last year, Canada received 50,000 asylum seekers. Only 20,000 of them crossed irregularly into uh, Quebec. This year, we are are around 10,000 who crossed irregularly. We cannot call that a crisis. The crisis is when in... Uh, six weeks in Bangladesh, 700,000 people cross into Bangladesh. That's a crisis. But and that's where I'm a bit concerned about sometimes the narrative and the language that we use to qualify what is, is happening in Canada because it's erode little by little the sympathy of the Canadian public for those uh, uh, situations by conflating a domestic issue which should not be in my view an issue because the numbers are totally manageable and we have a strong uh, government uh, a strong country economy and, and and so on with what's happening elsewhere the 25 millions uh, who I repeat only the 0.2% came mm-hmm. to Canada yeah. uh, so I, I'm, I'm just afraid by mixing all those issues the Canadian public um, may feel not that much sympathy anymore for the global uh, refugee causes. Um, I think that's an excellent uh, way to to end the conversation and a good note to, to leave it on. Um, Jean-Nicolas uh, Bose, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Merci. Uh, I, I wish you the very best tomorrow and uh, and good luck on, uh, 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 on your, your work in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. We would like to acknowledge the support of our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub based at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs 
at Carleton University. iAffairs engages the diverse international affairs community in Canada and around the world to produce policy research and recommendations on foreign policy issues with a specific focus on students, emerging scholars, and young professionals. Visit them at iAffairsCanada.com to learn more. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Samran Roy, Hamza Haddad, Stephen Cook, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks.